Why did Jesus suffer? That is the question we are asking over the next two Sundays. And we began actually asking that question last year. So uh, during Easter, we did. And of course, in some sense, we ask it every Sunday. But we especially began, we, we asked that question over last Easter. And uh, last Easter, you won't remember this, of course, but uh, I said that the Bible gives us at least six answers to that question. Six answers. Sometimes they're called six serving pictures of Jesus. Why did Jesus suffer? Well, the first answer, to refresh your memory, for those who were here last year, is that Christ suffered to give us peace with God. Human beings are carrying spiritual guns against God. We have declared war on him. And the Bible teaches us that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, that God by his grace has come in the person of Jesus to reconcile us back to God, to himself. So the first thing we learned last year about why Jesus suffered is that Christ is our reconciler, is our reconciler or peacemaker. The second answer to that question is that Christ suffered to make us clean before God. All human beings are contaminated by sin. If, but the Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, that Jesus' blood is a sacrifice, pays the sacrifice before God for our sin. It wipes us clean. So the second answer is that Christ is our sacrifice. That's the second answer. The third answer is that Christ suffered to set us free from our spiritual slavery of sin by paying a price for us to God. All human beings are born in a spiritual prison under Satan's domain and control, under the prison of sin, born, if you like, destined for hell, for use of that word, or bound for hell. But Christ has come to free us from our spiritual prison. He has paid a price, a redemption, so to speak, to God for us. He has set us free. So three pictures there. First, Christ is our reconciler. Second, Christ is our sacrifice. And Christ is our redeemer. We actually learned that truth about the redeemer in First Peter chapter 1, I think verse 17 to verse 20, 20 there. Today we'll look at the fourth answer to that question. And this evening, the fifth answer, and next Sunday evening or morning, or you haven't decided, the final answer. Today we're looking at the fourth answer, and it is in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 24 there. It's Peter says this, He himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This verse teaches us that Christ suffered in our place. He came to take the punishment we deserve. So we might say, to summarize, that Christ suffered as our legal substitute, as our substitute before God. That's the fourth answer. Now, prior to verse 24, before we look at this verse more closely, we see that Peter has been encouraging us, hasn't he, to respond to suffering in our lives by following the example of Jesus. That's what verse 21 says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is saying, follow Jesus. Don't take matters into your own hands if you are suffering unjustly or in any area of your life. Entrust yourself to God. But Peter wants us to remember that even though Jesus is our example, his suffering is unique. He's much more than an example. The suffering of Jesus is unique because Jesus comes as our substitute. And that's what he explains in verse 24. And there are just three things I just want us to see clearly in verse 24. The first thing is that Christ suffered for sinners. Christ suffered for sinners. Who did Jesus die for? He suffered for sinners. Now the Times newspaper, some time back, it is alleged, a long time ago apparently, once sent out an inquiry to famous authors, philosophers, scientists, and you know, the great and good of society, and they asked them a simple question. Well, it sounds simple. The question was this, what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? I wonder how you answer that question. I think if we went outside and asked people just to respond to the Times question, we are likely to get many different answers, right? Some may say, what's wrong with the world today is that we are not at peace with one another. Others may suggest, no, what's really wrong with the world today is poor leadership. Corrupt politicians who pander to special interests and don't keep their promises. That's what's wrong with the world. Others may say, no, what's wrong with the world is human ignorance, you see? We don't have a good handle on science. If we can educate ourselves no more, well, things will be better, wouldn't they? Some may say. Others would point to religion. What's wrong with the world is religion. Too many wars around the world started by religion. That's what's wrong with the world. If we get rid of religion, well, perhaps things might improve. That's what some people may say. Others may just directly point to God. What's wrong with the world is God. God is responsible. I often, when I talk to people, they tell me what is wrong with the world is really God. And this is why I can't worship him when we do outreach there. They're just honest. They say, look, even if God is there, I think it's what, what is wrong with the world. Because God knows there's so much evil. Why hasn't he done something uh, about it, they would say. There are many answers people give. And as I said, I wonder how you respond to that question. What is wrong with the world? Well, the Christian apologist, G.K. Chesterton, also received the question from the Times newspaper. And he simply responded, Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton is saying the fundamental problem is us. We are what's wrong with the world. And I've been thinking about Chesterton's answer, and I think he's sort of right. I would say 90% right. He's definitely headed in the right direction. He is nearly there, isn't he? But, but you see, according to, the, according to the Bible, what is wrong with the world really is, not, is, is us, yes, but much deeper than us. What is wrong with the world is sin. 
our sin. Um, the Bible says all of us are spiritual patients suffering from sin, right? And this, this is what is wrong with us. Uh, our sin is what is wrong. And this is the first thing we notice in verse 24. Look at verse 24. He says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I want to suggest to you this morning that you can't understand anything else taking place in this verse, in the scriptures, until you understand and take in this point. These two words Peter uses there. Our sins. He himself bore our sins. We can't understand anything until we get that. Peter is saying, we are sinners. Now, in our society today, people don't call themselves sinners anymore. They don't. A young man spends four years in jail for a 1.4 billion fraud at the Swiss bank UBS. He is released in 2015 while he's awaiting deportation, being deported to Ghana. The man asks him, the BBC asks him, how he feels about why he has died. He responds, I am sorry, beyond words. I really failed. I made mistakes. In fact, when they asked him, What's going on with his future in terms of life and the fact that he's being deported, how he feels about being deported to Ghana? Uh, he responds and says, well, the British government actually, they are just deporting me because, you see, they're very racist. And so he starts now accusing the government of conducting a policy of deportation based on race. He shifts the blame from his 1.4 billion fraud to Her Majesty's um, government. A celebrity is caught kissing his strictly calm dancing partner. Uh, a married woman uh, he was caught kissing. And he was also in a sort of in a, in a relationship of his own. When he's first confronted, his response is, I'm being victimized. People do all of this. Why are you having a go at me? It happens all the time. A strictly calm dancing, right? But public pressure for him grows that he should be kicked off from the show, right? For doing this thing. That's when he goes on TV and says, I made a mistake. I am sorry for the hurt that I've caused, that I may have caused others. People no longer sin. What's missing from there is any acknowledgement that I sinned against God. I am a sinner. And I want not only you people to forgive me for what I've done, but I want God to forgive me. People don't say that anymore. They used to say that. But actually they don't because we no longer sin. They are willing to admit mistakes, but not sin. We see that in the world. What about us here who swim in the stream of church culture? What do we make of sin? Well, in our case, we never deny sin. We would agree with Peter when he says, our sins. We never deny it. But we change the meaning of sin to be about the most public sins, especially sexual sins. The sins that worry us is the homosexuality. It is uh, adultery. It is murder, pedophilia, all these sorts of what we see as big public sins. That's what worries us. 
We've changed the meaning to focus on those sexual sins, which in the eyes of God are just as sinful as some of the things we do, right? Or our sins are just as sinful as some of the things we do. We, we ignore gossip. We never see a person crushed and come before us, come in the church and say, pray for my pride, please. Pray that I be delivered from it. People don't worry that they are lazy. It doesn't worry them that they are prayerless. These, all of these are sins, and the list of sins are many. People, Christians don't worry that they don't evangelize. That's a sin to refuse to obey the command of Jesus to share the gospel. So you see, we've redefined sin in the church to be about what the public does, the big sins, rather than some of our private sins that we have. We believe that God is bothered about the big sins, but he's not bothered about my small, what, I, what I regard as my small sins. But of course, to God's eyes, there are no small sins. But when we are doing that, when we are redefining sin like that, you see, we are denying sin itself. So when Peter says here, our sins, whether we are in the world or sat here this morning, we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is sin? What is it? What does Peter mean here, our sins? Well, the original word for sin here is missing the mark or target. When you came in, some of you driving, perhaps you are trying to park in the right spot, right? But you parked over the line, right? You missed the mark. That is what sin is. You were meant to be like this, but you missed the mark. We missed the target. And the target that all of us miss in life is God's standard, isn't it? God is holy, good, full of majesty and glory. We are meant to treat him like that, but we don't. We have put ourselves first rather than putting God first. But I want you to understand that sin is not simply, when Peter says our sins, it's not simply talking about the wrong actions we take or things we are meant to do which we don't do, right? Or the unkind words we utter to others or the evil thoughts that we have. No, when Peter says sin, he's talking much more than that. It's deeper than that. The sin he's talking about, our sin is a perverted principle or moral force in our hearts, in our inner being. The Old Testament theologian, Alec Motia, says this. He's an expert on the Old Testament. He's going to be with the Lord. But while he was on earth, he said this. He says, sin is that inner reality of our deviant nature. It is the inner reality of our deviant nature. It says there is within us a pervertedness of our nature. We are corrupt to the core. The Puritan Richard Sibbs said this, the human art is like a dungeon. There is nothing seen but horror and confusion. This is a natural condition of everyone. We need to understand that this is who we are by nature. We are born this way. And that's not a good thing. We need to understand that. And we need to understand it especially, I think the world gets that. I think actually when I talk to them, they understand immediately, they can see their sins. But it's hard for us who attend church every Sunday morning to actually believe this. Because, you see, there is certainly within our churches a feel-good-about-yourself movement that has infected the church today. It has never been popular to tell people that they are sinners. 
but it is even less popular than it was before. And the reason why it's less popular, but especially in the Western world, to tell people they are sinners, is that we live now in a narcissistic society. Beloved, it's not just Julian Assange. It is all of us. All of us are full of self-love. And the world is now increasingly telling us to be like that. And so the, we, are, we live in the culture, and the result is that many of you who attend church every Sunday, at the core of ourselves, we see ourselves as good, very good, and decent people. We pay our taxes. We don't matter anymore. We voted to leave the EU or to stay, whatever you think is the right one. We, we go to the voting booth for sure, right? We feel we're all right. We look at ourselves. Good careers, perhaps. We raise our children morally. We are worried about what they're teaching in schools, aren't we? Because we believe at the core we are very decent and good people. And there is a sense in which we are if we are comparing ourselves to the world. But Peter and the Bible doesn't compare you to the world. It compares you to God. And he says here, our sins. He's reminding you that you are a sinner. And I'm emphasizing this point because unless you understand that this is your biggest problem, you won't benefit from Easter. You won't benefit from this verse. Because read this verse again. He himself bore our sins. Well, if you are a good and decent person, then you don't need anyone else to bear your sins. We'll come to that in a moment. You've got to understand this. Before you can make much of Jesus dying on that cross, that tree, you must get it that he's dying for sinners, for you, a rebellious sinner. And if you think you're good and decent, then, of course, the sacrifice is not for you. As someone has said, all ships that land at the shore of Christ's death weigh anchor from the port of sin. We must start where the Bible starts. You cannot benefit from Christ's suffering until you say deep in your heart, Christ came into this world to serve sinners and I am the worst sinner. And so the question for us this morning is this. Can you say that before? Is that how you feel? Do you recognize that you are a sinner? A vile, wicked sinner before God. You have missed his mark. Do you recognize that your life grieves God deeply? If you truly do, then praise God. And the next point is only for those who do. And the next point, the benefits of this verse are only for those who do. And the benefit is this. The second point. Christ suffered in your place. Amen? Christ suffered in our place. If you recognize you are a vile sinner, that's the benefit. Christ suffered in our place. In the place of sinners. Jesus is a sinless one who had no need to die. This is our second point. But willingly chose to die or our death, the death our sins deserved. He suffered as our substitute. 
So the first point is Christ suffered for sinners. Second point, Christ suffered in our place. And we see that in verse 24. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The the Bible says, you see, the result of sin is that we are cut off from God. God is the source of all life and we are sinners, therefore we are cut off from him. We are under the punishment of death in all its forms. Romans 6 verse 23 says this, the wages of sin is death. And so God can only remove that punishment hanging over us if someone perfect willingly takes our place and suffers the punishment of death, everlasting death, from God for us. is infinite punishment. That individual must be human like us to take our punishment, right? To stand in for us. But for him to take the very punishment of God for sinners, many sinners, he must be as powerful as God. Because only God can bear the punishment of God and leave. No human being can do that. He must be human and he must be fully God. And the good news of this verse is that God the Son, Jesus, has come to fulfill both requirements. As God, he enters our world to willingly step into our shoes. But he comes not, he comes. It puts on our humanity. As a ba- first as a baby, right, in the womb of Mary, he grows up as a man, and then he goes to the cross. He steps in our shoes, and God punishes him for our sin. He puts his body on the guillotine of the cross. He dies in our place. That's what verse 24 says, isn't it? He himself, Jesus, God the Son, bore our sins. In his body, because in his body, because he was fully human. And he dies on the cross. But he doesn't say that, does he? His body on the tree. Don't miss that. The phrase, his body on the tree, refers to his physical death on the cross. But the reason Peter uses the word tree is that he wants to look, us to look up a passage in the Bible. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 to verse 23. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 to verse 23, says this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. This is God stipulating to the children of Israel. But you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man, listen to this, is cursed by God. You shall not defy your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Peter wants us to read that, and he wants to look at the cross Jesus dying there, and seeing that Jesus is dying a criminal's death. He's dying cursed by God. Jesus' death is shameful death. But he's choosing to do this for us, to suffer the infinite wrath of God there, Publicly, because he's suffering like that in your place. And beloved, if you get anything with this Easter, it's that, isn't it? The amazing news of Easter is this that instead of you suffering everlasting punishment, God poured his infinite wrath on Jesus for you. God suffered in your place. 
So whatever your situation this morning, this is the truth that you need, isn't it? This truth that God has suffered in your place should make you actually pause and reflect on your life. When I looked at this passage, I paused and I reflected. God suffered in your place. Ponder that for a minute. And as you are pondering it, I hope you are beginning to pick up some things in your thoughts. First of all, I should first remind you just how serious the problem of sin is. It is so serious that it takes God himself to suffer punishment in order to save you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We could change the he with God in there. God himself bore our sins in his human body on the tree. It should remind you of that. How serious your sin is. It takes God to save you from it. Nothing showed me how serious my sin is before God than the fact that the full punishment of it can only be borne by the almighty back of God himself. Thinking about Jesus hanging there on the cross for my sin should also do a second thing. It should make me feel ashamed of myself about the loving, about me loving the poisonous venom of sin. It makes me feel ashamed that I sin, that I love sin sometimes. <coughs> and it should make us want to get rid of it. It is impossible to see God the Son looking at us from that bloody cross and be complacent about sin. It's impossible. He who has stared at Gogota cannot be complacent about sin. It makes us want to get rid of it. Most importantly, it should make us clearly see that the love of God is beyond comparison. What a loving and compassionate God our Jesus is. God could have simply abandoned us to our everlasting punishment. He could have left us on the dung heap of judgment. He could have left us to reap the fruit of our sin and perish in hell forever. But he did not. Out of the abundance of his love, he pursued us all the way to the cross. There he bore the punishment for my sin and yours. It takes a truly hard-hearted, stony heart not to be moved by amazing love like that. It really does. It really does. Because it is more than love. This is why the Bible calls it grace. Because God is dying there for sinners, not good people. It is grace because it's God's relentless pursuit of rebels. A love that comes after sinners to offer us a priceless gift of life with God, purchased by God himself. How can you not be moved by such a love like that? 
And the question all of us have to ask ourselves this morning is, do I know this love for myself? Do I know this Jesus intimately? Have I truly accepted this amazing gift of Christ as my substitute? My friends, please do not underestimate what is at stake here. If you do not take Jesus wholeheartedly, you are rejecting his punishment, his suffering in your place. You are saying to God, I am making a fully conscious choice to fully bear your wrath on my own, rather than accepting Jesus doing it for me. That's what you're doing. If you don't fully repent and come to truth, faith in Christ, that's what you're telling him. Thank you, but no thanks. I choose to suffer under your punishment on my own. My friend, listen to me. We are too small to withstand the full wrath of God. The wrath that made Jesus cry out himself, Who is God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at this moment? If God could cry out on the cross like that, can you stand this wrath? Of course we can't. So we must run to Jesus, our substitute today. We must receive forgiveness for our sin. We must ask him to make us right with God. We must be honest about approaching him with this full understanding. Because there's no salvation unless we've grasped this and we've gone to Jesus based on this truth. Now some of you perhaps have already come to this position of truly trusting in Jesus. You are trusting him or perhaps now you've come to that position of fully surrendering to him. What has the suffering of Jesus in our place mean for us? Well, it means everything that's happened. And that's wonderful. But is there more? Does Peter have any more comfort for us? Additional comfort? Well, the cross is enough comfort. But in this verse, we see that there is one important thing we need to remember about the suffering of Christ in our place. And it is this, that Christ suffered to make us live for God. (coughs) And that's our final truth. The first truth is Christ suffered for sinners. The second truth is How did he do it? Well, Christ suffered in our place. What does it mean for me if I'm trusting Jesus? Well, it means that the third point, Christ suffered to make me live for God. Christ suffered in our place to make us live for God in Christ by saving us from from two things, the power of sin and the presence of sin. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. But notice that middle sentence that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter is saying those of us who are in Christ have now died to the old way of life because Jesus has died on the cross in our place. When, as we've been learning in Bible studies, isn't it? When Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. And therefore, we died to our old way of life. 
as we learned this evening, when Jesus rose, he rose as a second Adam for us, joined to him. If you are in Christ, you are now able to live right before God because the power of sin is broken forever. And I don't know as you sit here this morning what addictions you are facing in your life. I don't know what you're struggling with. Maybe you're struggling with lust. Maybe you're wrestling with gossip. Perhaps you're battling self-loathing. Perhaps it's struggle with perpetual unforgiveness towards others. Perhaps you're struggling with laziness, prayerlessness, and you, you are battling these things. Battling these things can make us feel helpless, isn't it? These temptations. But if you are trusting in Jesus who has died in your place, know that the power of sin has been broken forever in Christ. There is hope for your struggles. Because you are already dead to them. The old man died on the cross with Christ. And the old woman, right? So now go to Christ. Knowing you are already his. And ask him to strengthen you. And as we've been learning in Bible study, well, we learn more in Bible studies, don't we? And as we've been learning there, well, we have the divine power now at work in us. We now share in his divine nature. We are united with Christ. So we can go to ask him to strengthen us. And as you come into him to ask you to strengthen us to live for God, you, you, can, you, you, can, you must keep your eye on verse 24, the last sentence of verse 24. It says this, By his wounds you have been healed. By his, by his wounds you have been healed. Peter here is actually quoting from uh, Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. For us to understand what he means by healing there, we, we have to turn to Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. Uh, this is our final verse. I'll just read it for you. Isaiah 53. If you bang in the middle of the Bible and start searching to your right, uh, you could land one of the prophets, Isaiah. He says this in chapter 53, verse 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our grief, speaking of Christ, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When he was dying there, we, we esteemed him stricken. We thought God was punishing him for himself. But no, verse 5 tells us. He was actually wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 goes on to say, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us Oh, Peter quotes that verse, doesn't he? That by his stripes we are healed because he's reminding us that the healing that Jesus brings is a spiritual healing from the spiritual disease of sin. But notice the benefits of this healing is that we now have restoration, peace with God, shalom in our lives. That's what he says there in Isaiah, isn't it? Upon him was the chastisement, the bruising, the crushing that brought as shalom, peace. Shalom means flourishing in every area of our lives. It's wholeness. Like a well-watered plant. Imagine a well-watered plant. That is shalom, right? 
Complete absence of brokenness. Isaiah saw the coming of Jesus as bringing a new flourishing in our inner life with, in our inner life with God. Our flourishing in life with one another and flourishing in our environment. It's a wonderful picture as we see this evening of Christ, the second Adam, inaugurating in this shalom because it's been Christ for us. And if you are in Jesus, the coming of Jesus, you share in him, in, in Christ himself, right? It means you are experiencing this flourishing beginning now. But the full experience of it is not yet. It will be fully fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. This is why Christ suffered. By his wounds, you were healed, you are being healed, and you will be healed from sin forever. He suffered in our place, in the place of sinners, so that we would live with God and flourish with God forever. I don't know how you respond to such blessings if you're trusting in Christ. I don't know what strikes you about that. But I think for me, the only thing I can do when I think about what Jesus has done for me here is to thank him, isn't it? We cannot help but be moved by such, having such a priceless, precious substitute. I cannot help myself but look at the cross and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. I can't help but be amazed that Christ died for me. He took my place on that bloody cross. He chose those Roman nails for me, for my benefit. He bled and died to take my sins. In the words of the hymn writer, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And immediately as I think of that, I find myself singing with another hymn writer. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my whole. How else am I to thank him? It is only by surrendering my life over and over again to him. My hope to him. To live and tell others about him every day. How else am I to thank him? Is it rearranging all my priorities to fit in with this? Love so amazing. I want to live to share love so amazing. And this is the call of everyone who has truly as had Christ suffer in their place. Well, may the Lord help all of us, his sister, to marvel in this amazing love of Christ our substitute. And maybe I can just challenge you this Easter. If, you, if you've experienced this love, Christ being your substitute, just tell one person before Easter Sunday about it. Maybe you bump into them in the morning, just tell them, this is what Jesus has done. Do you know that's what Easter is about? Just one. Tell them. Because love so amazing, you can't keep it to yourself. That's a challenge I leave you for Easter. Just one soul. Tell them of what Jesus has done for you. Be like that man who was delivered from the 
legion. He went and told everyone what Jesus had done for him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for being our substitute in Christ. Such love for us, Lord, such love. We spend all eternity exploring what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there are some here this morning, those that have not yet come to fully trust and surrender in you, they have not, they're choosing to bear that punishment on their own. I pray that you would serve them, that you make them see just how marvelous you are. Help them to see of your amazing love for them. Help them to come to true repentance, truly trusting, truly looking to Jesus. But we want everyone here, Lord, to have life with you. Lord, I, I don't want anyone here to bear that punishment for them, for themselves. I want them, Lord, to come and fully trust you, to benefit from Christ being our substitute. And I want to pray, Lord Jesus, for those that do trust you. I pray that you'd give them that wandering at the cross, just the amazement, the Lord, that of what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help them to continually surrender their life to you and to tell others, especially, Lord, this Easter, what you have done for them on the cross, being their substitute. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.